Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Sleep. Never retreat. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, where we take an insider's look into the training of eight of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials in Atlanta in February 2020. And in this episode is our first installment talking with a coach of one of the eight runners that we're following. So we're talking to James McCurdy, who is the coach of John Ranieri. So I was really excited to talk to James for a number of reasons. First of which, James is actually my coach. So obviously I'm nowhere near as fast as John Ranieri, but you'll hear the familiarity between James and I, and that's because we've been friends for quite a while. But I want to talk to James in particular because John is getting ready for the Crim 10 miler, which will be next weekend. And John's just had a very up and down year with some of his results. Obviously, if you've heard our first episode, then you already know that John had a wonderful, uh, Brooklyn half marathon, I'm sorry, New York City half marathon, I should say, and did, um, at that same, same year, didn't have the, um, the Boston marathon that he was hoping for. So we talk a lot about that with James. And in addition, we also touch on just a lot of the, the specifics he's worked with, with John over the past year and a half, two years to try to get him to reach his potential. And we just really dive into the X's and O's of what it's like to coach John specifically. So I hope you like this episode with James McCurdy. In addition, over on our other podcast, the Rambling Runner podcast. If you like these episodes, I guarantee you, you're going to like our last episode with Liz Kamey. Liz will also be running the Olympic trials. She is a mother. She is just about to get her doctorate. She is an absolutely amazing person in so many ways. And in addition to that, she was just a great person to interview. Talk about somebody who brings it I just had a blast talking with her, and I think that you will like that episode as well. But with all of that being said, here is my episode with James McCurdy. Hello, James, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I am really happy to be on here. This is a fantastic idea that you had like six, eight weeks ago or so. And uh, man, it's just what a, what a cool – I mean, today you launched uh, – today or yesterday, you launched Jared Ward. Yeah, that was today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a cool environment. And uh, to have everybody kind of learn their process and their struggles or their uh, successes along the way, it's it's a really cool thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. And then also, full disclosure for anyone listening, you are also my coach. I'm obviously not anywhere near as fast as John Ranieri, so I appreciate you slumming it with me every once in a while with with uh, with your coaching pedigree. But uh, I do want people to understand that. So you and I are friends, and we go back a ways. But uh, I am excited to talk about John because he really has, in so many ways, had these ups and downs and different variations within his career that getting your expertise and kind of hearing your side of things is going to be, I think, you know, really uh, illustrative of what John has gone through and also what he's capable of doing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, you know me as, as a coach, as a friend, and, and we're getting ready for CIM. And I think what you're going to find is that the ideas and the concepts that we present for John are not going to be that different than what we present for you when you get to your race. That is surprising and interesting at the same time, and, and I, we can definitely dive into exactly what some of those tr- 
some of those, you know, whether it's workouts or training philosophies are. But before we get to there specifically, let's just talk about, you know, the first, you know, when you first became acquainted with John as a person. Okay. So John did not know that I knew of him when he was in high school. Uh, I was uh, an assistant and a volunteer assistant coach uh, at a high school level. And a lot of the kids that I coached against would run against John at the state championship level. So I have seen John run ever since he was a junior in high school. And that was in Connecticut? That was in Connecticut. He was was from New Fairfield, Connecticut, born and raised. um, And he was one of the best runners in state. He's one of the best runners in state history at the high school level. um, And certainly now. uh, And that was about 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Okay, so when did you start forming a relationship with John? We met uh, about 10 minutes before the New Haven 20K in 2016. Uh, I actually, he was doing some striders and I was getting ready for my race. And it was a kind of a, a somewhat of a goal race for me that season to, to run well. And I had a very specific goal in mind for myself. And I bumped into him and I said, hey, John, I don't know if you know me at all, but you know, I, I used to coach so-and-so that used to run against, and I think you guys are still friends, and he was. Uh, so we just shook hands, uh, and he said, yeah, I, I said, good luck to him, and he said, good luck to me, and that was it. Like, that's that that was our only conversation in on, on Labor Day of 2016, uh, and he was still a Brooks athlete at that time, uh, part of the Brooks ID program, and then we met again the following spring, uh, he was running at a race as well, and we we started talking. And um, he he, at the, I think at the time he was living with one of our coaches here in Flagstaff. He he stayed out here for a little while. Uh, and this was well before uh, we had moved out here. Um, but he was talking to Ryan Donor about the idea of coaching and this this concept of being able to train and live as a coach at the same time. And it was intriguing to him. And I didn't really know him as a coach. Um, so he reached out and I said, yeah, well, well, we'll see. We'll see what the opportunity presents. And we started talking over the next few months. And I decided to bring him on board as a coach. And uh, he's done an amazing job. It was very slow at first because he was a little new. And I, I wanted to see how he would do and kind of test the waters a little bit. Um, even though he had been running for much of his life, I want it's different when you're running and when you're working with people. And uh, I wanted to see how he would respond and he did a very good job and we slowly built his athlete base up. Um, and then uh, and he had been working, been working with a few other coaches along the way. I, th- I believe he had two other coaches before working with me. Uh, July 20th of last year was actually our coach athlete anniversary. Got it. And what precipitated that change where he decided to start working with you? Well, it's interesting. Um, Tim Ritchie is my coach. Uh, We talked once or twice about John uh, over the course of the previous year. And one of the things that we spoke about was, man, John works so hard all of the time. If he just had a coach that would hold him back just a little bit initially, he would just go so far. And even Tim said he would love to work with him. But he, he had another coach at the time. And I never approached John about it because I knew he had a very good relationship with his, with his coach. Um, but on two or three occasions, John asked me to show up to one of his workouts in Connecticut when we were still there. And uh, so I did. I was there. I was happy to be there and film him and take a few photos of him. 
but I noticed a few things of his technique that we could have fixed and changed. So I gave him a few coaching cues and it never really took hold. <laughs> um, it, well, it took a while to take hold. And then I think, um, I think for John, uh, we, we started a, a good friendship over the, over the, the, the course of a year and a half. And I think for him, he needed to feel that friendship in, in, a, in a coach first. If he was going to make a change, he needed to feel like he was making a change that was going to help him get to the next level or he was going to retire from competitive running because he was done with it. And um, we, we had been talking about training, about, of course, his own athletes and what things he needed to do uh, to be a better coach and be a better service for his athletes. And I think just over time, it you know, his grandfather passed away. See, here's the thing about John. Um, he... He's such a caring guy. He really is. He, he, he's an, an amazing person. He's a really good runner. That's awesome. But he's a really good person. I put him in charge of a New Haven 20K half marathon training program last year. And John was living in, in Connecticut for a little while. But then his grandfather died. And I th he, he alluded to that uh, on, when, he was, when, when you spoke to him on, on the first interview. And his grandfather lived in, in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, so John, in order to kind of clean things up and take care of the house, he was living in upstate New York for, for much of the summer. And every single Wednesday night, this amazing runner would drive, I think it's 280 miles or whatever it is, from Cooperstown, New York to New Haven, Connecticut to be with a small group of athletes just looking to run two-hour half marathons, right? He would drive all that distance to train them and then drive all the way back to Cooperstown, New York to, to go back up to the house. He did that the entire summer for 12 weeks. And the athletes that he was working with, they didn't even know that he was doing that. Which speaks, which speaks not only to his caring nature, but also, you know, just his, you know, how dedicated he can be. So, which is interesting when you juxtapose it to the fact that, you know, what you just discussed was that he was considering if things weren't going to go well for him in the short term, that he was potentially going to hang it up. So what was, what was causing him, like, what were some of the pain points that were leading him to believe that maybe this, you know, maybe continuing as a professional or quasi-professional runner wasn't in the cards? Well, he ran a really good half marathon in Philadelphia Rock and Roll, a race that Coach Tim Ritchie won in 101.47, or 20, 21 rather, uh, or 22 or so. Uh, John ran that race as well. He ran 104.29, and that was his best half marathon. Uh, and then he started going backwards. He started slowing down. He was training so hard. He was doing three or four hard workouts a week under – a professional coach's guidance. Now, I don't even remember who he was working with. It doesn't even matter. It was just too much for John. Some professional athletes can handle that type of load. John could not. The way he would run destroyed his running. It was killing him. His actual uh, technique in running was not allowing him to get better. So when we started talking, when he reached out and said he wanted to come over, I said, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to fix how you run. Like you're fast, but you would knock minutes off your half marathon if we could just change a few things about how you run and just ease off the gas a little bit. 
So when he came in, that can, was I, can I dive the, into that for a second? Because yeah, that, that's yeah. an interesting point. Because oftentimes, and I, if I've read this once, I've read it a hundred times, and from from very respected people as well, is that the best way to get better running form is to run fast. And the faster you run, the better your form will be. And obviously, it's not it's, it's not pre- meant to be presented as a as a complete. Uh, you know, a complete silver bullet to running form, but it's, it's oftentimes almost presented as such. So, how could somebody reach the heights that John had reached without ha- with having such glaring deficiencies in his form? It was, <laughs> it's it's crazy to think about, but John was essentially jumping from leg to leg rather than getting off the foot. Right, So his arm carry was so slow that he was literally bounding every single step, almost over-exaggerating every step he took. And I actually have a video of a before and after of how he runs now versus how he used to run that I made a post uh, sometime before the Boston Marathon because that was one of the things that we worked on so much was simply let's do less with your upper body so your legs can move faster. It wasn't that he wasn't working hard enough. That wasn't the issue. But literally, his arms were swinging so much that his legs were going slower. And it, even though he, he had already accomplished a 4.15 mile or a 4.10 mile at the time, even though he, he had run one of the better 10Ks in, in UNC, um, University of North Carolina, history, even though he had, he had run a, a 101 20K, he still had all these inefficiencies with how he ran. And by fixing those little inefficiencies, it literally took minutes off of a half marathon. He's now, I mean, it, it's unreal. What he's able to do now is it's unreal comparative to what he was doing before. Now, how do you fix those things with, how do you fix those things with John specifically while still trying to like, you know, obviously keep him in shape and also not having some sort of domino effect where you fix one thing and then cause a different injury or some sort of inefficiency somewhere else. Well, one thing we, we slowed down easy runs. We made those pretty lackadaisical and sometimes he runs seven minute miles. Sometimes he runs eight minute miles. So we slowed that down to reduce the risk of injury. Uh, We also, in terms of the technique of it, I would literally just yell at him. (laughs) <laughs> as as rudimentary as that sounds, every single note uh, on most of his major workouts, I would say arms, arms, arms. It is ingrained in his head that even in the races now, when he's running races, he says it to himself. He's just, it's it's on automatic. He's just always thinking subconsciously now, how do I make sure I don't revert back to what I used to do? And it's 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 a it took a little time. It took about four months to really, or three months to really dial it in. Yeah, and it's almost as if now, and you could probably could do a better job describing it as I, as I as I will. But it's almost like his arms are his his wrists, I should say, are about I don't know three to four inches above like his elbow line. If you were to make a yeah, right angle, so- like his, his 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 hands are he he's carrying his hands much higher than he was before. It seems like yes. His arm swing was so long and over-exaggerated that his wrist would drop below his hips, but then his wrist would also come up by his opposite shoulder. So you think about that distance, right? This is a biomechanical response that our body has. It has no choice. 
If our arms are long, slow, and heavy, then our legs have no choice but to match the same rate of speed. Right? They so have, it's almost it, as if he was like it's almost as if he was like shoveling water out of a boat and dumping it behind his back. He couldn't yeah, it it was so over exaggerated. That's a great way of looking at it. And it it's just heavy, right? It's just heavy. So I just try to fix what his arm carriage looks like. And in doing so, it allowed him to have a much better cadence, right? Now it's not always about the cadence, but for John it very much was. Uh and then in doing that, well now we can start getting fit. All right. So when you started working with John, what what did you view as his potential ceiling if the training went well and he stayed healthy? I told him that within three months of us starting, he would run under 64 minutes in a, in a half marathon. And then by the following spring, he'd be under 103. Uh, that was my thought process behind it. And I, he said, oh, I really want to really take a stab at breaking four minutes in a mile. I said, John, who cares about a four-minute mile? Like that's not going to – we have high schoolers that do that now. That's not going to get you anywhere. Right? It's, it's a cool thing to say. It's a cool thing to claim, but it, it's not going to propel your running career. And we could do that or we could stay, take a stab at becoming one of the better marathoners in the country. And your potential – as you get older, is not going to be with the shorter distances. It's going to be with the longer distances. And all the things that you've been working towards have been hindering your long distance ability. So let's fix those things and get really good at the long distance. So we've talked I a lot that. about yeah, well, we've talked a lot about his potential or his his uh, some of his weaknesses, specifically with his form. What did you view as some of his overwhelming strengths? Because obviously he was a very he's a very talented guy who even oh, with yeah. um even even with some setbacks and challenges had achieved shoot some some pretty good results. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I didn't know too much about him as a person or as an athlete. I just knew. That he could run. So right off the bat, with all these inefficiencies, if you're still able to run 64 minutes mid in a half marathon, uh, a 218 marathon without even taking nutrition, then he's a cardiac monster. Like he's just born to run. Some people are gifted with the ability to jump or do math or or do engineering. John is born to run. That that is what he is made for when it comes to a physical skill that like he he is absolutely one of those athletes that he that this is what he's meant to do he, he he's terrible at basketball he's terrible at soccer this is what he's meant to do so his 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 his, his it, it's in him it, it's everything inside of him and you can just see it the way he runs when he's running hard it, it's like he's floating on the on the track or on the roads it's awesome yeah, I'm a huge fan of some of the videos that, that he has put out. I, I I get hypnotized by them. I want them to be more like on the Instagram TV than just the Instagram post because I just keep refreshing the 60-second video. So it really yeah. is it really is beautiful to watch. And you laid out what you thought his potential uh, timeline was from improvement, especially in that the half marathon distance. What started happening um, in terms of what his actual results were once you started working together? Uh, he, he, I think it was a long time coming, but the way he would go about it was, was I thought very inefficient for, for how he was running. So right off the bat, he said a road mile PR and a, and a, and a track two mile PR, um, right off the bat, like within the first month, which is pretty cool. 
it wasn't anything to do with me. It was literally just fixing a few things in his, in his preparation for it. Uh, the biggest thing, though, was the New Haven 20K. He wanted to race that as hard as possible, uh, and I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't let him because I knew what type of weather he was going to be having, and I knew where the goal was. And he had a goal half marathon on October 21st out in Columbus, Ohio. And I said, if you dig to the well in this race, there's you're, you're going to risk training and you're, you, you might risk your, your chance of, of getting your goal of breaking 64 minutes and a half marathon. So I want you to run this a very specific way and I want you to hold back regardless of what the weather says because I don't want you to dig to the well. And, and, and I think because he did that, because he allowed himself to not race as hard as possible, it saved his fall season. So then he goes out to Columbus, Ohio. He runs a 103.49 within four seconds of what we thought he was going to run, which is really cool. Um, but then right after that, he comes back and runs um, the, the New York uh, Abbott 5K. Um, and he, he didn't, at the time, he didn't qualify to be in the elite field. So he runs the, the New York Roadrunners version of it, uh, the dash to the finish. And he ended up running like with the professional field. He ended up running within uh, the top 20. I think he was 18th or 17th overall, uh, even with the professional runners, which is really cool. Uh, but then he also finished 12th at the Manchester Road Race, which is a famed uh, Thanksgiving Day road race. Uh, those three events right there were allowed because he didn't work too hard on the New Haven 20K. Which is about, what, five weeks before the Columbus race? It was five or six weeks before, yeah. And what did that do for his confidence um, after that season had, had finished up and you start preparing for the spring? Oh, right, right off the bat, he finishes the Manchester Road Race and he got invited to run a 5K up in Boston. I said, no way, John. He said, talk me off the ledge, but hear me out. He said both things, talk me off the ledge, but hear me out. <laughs> and I said, there's no way on God's green earth we're going to do that. We're going to take some downtime. You've been working your ass off since July. Let's take some downtime. Let's recover. You're going to go to, to, to France to visit your sister. He ran like 30 or 40 minutes a day, five days a week for, for two weeks. He comes back. He starts running a little bit. Um, and then I just started a slow build for, the, uh, for the, uh, the spring season. And that was spring 2018, right? 2019. That was this past spring. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So let's, let's, let's dive into the spring because it really is you know, a tale of two stories, right? Because yeah, oh, you yeah. have the... You have the New York City half, and you yep. have the Boston Marathon. So let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about getting ready for the New York City half and what his training looked like. Because it really, I know, you know, we'll talk about the result in a second. The result was yep. fantastic. John spoke about it at length in our conversation. But let's talk about how you thought the training was going and what were some of the the I guess the the things that you were trying to do from a planning perspective in that yeah. build up and training cycle with him. So to, to talk about New York, we have to talk about what happened a few weeks before that. Um, John made the decision to move out to Flagstaff. Uh, he was ready. He wanted to be out here to train for elevation. He wasn't planning on living here full time. He just wanted to be here for three or four months. He, he had an opportunity to go to New York. He said, John, if you're going to go anywhere, come out to Flagstaff. Stay out here. Let me coach you in person as I'm able to. But just get the benefits of being at altitude and get the benefits of great weather and not having to deal with the snow, which we ended up having to deal with anyway because 
you know, we had a one storm of 44 inches or, what, or, or whatever it was. But um, he ran about four weeks into training. He ran the Phoenix Mesa Half Marathon. And it was going to be a time trial, and it was. We didn't care who was running the race. I said, uh, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And I would really like you to run 102.30 for a half marathon. And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. I said, John, like th this is the altitude conversion. This is what we believe you're capable of doing because of your workouts. Just go out there and run these times, and you're going to run 102.30 for the half marathon. He ran 102.31, and he did it solo. He did it by himself. Uh, ben Bruce ran a great race that day. He ran a little over uh, 104. Uh, just missed the Olympic trials qualifying uh, time. Um, but John ben, ben was second. John was first uh, by uh, almost two minutes in that race. It was a great effort. It was fantastic. And that set up the rest of our season. When, when John went to New York City, I actually didn't want him to go as fast. I wanted him to run around 64 to 6430. I wanted him to run most of it at a marathon effort and then progress at the end of it so we didn't dig too deep because we had only four weeks to go before the Boston Marathon. But that's not the way the race planned out. I thought, and we both thought, that the race might go a little bit slower because it was going to be very windy. But he woke up that morning and the race wasn't slow. There was no wind at all. Not until like later on in the race. So it was like picture perfect and the race went out like a rocket. So it was either hang back and just run or I'm going to be competitive and I'm going to stay with this group of people, which wasn't a bad call at all. It was risky. It wasn't a bad call. Tim Ritchie was, was there. Jared Ward, Brogan Austin, uh, Noah Drowdy was there. Folks that were going to run Boston. So if they were doing it, it, it couldn't have been that risky, but maybe, maybe Jared wasn't running as hard as John might have been pushing. Maybe that was a little bit more the scenario with, with Jared, but I know the other guys are working really, really hard. So when he ran 62.31 in Phoenix, what was his reaction and what sort of reaction did you and he experience just in the running community generally? Obviously, that's a huge, that's a huge number. Did you did it, it start to put him on the map a little bit with some people who maybe hadn't realized what he was capable of doing? Not at all. Not at all. Because people look at that race as they look at the elevation profile and they're like, oh, that's all downhill. And it's not as downhill as people make it out to be. It's a gracious course, but it is a challenging course. And you do have to kind of weave your way in and out of the 10K folk that are finishing up the 10K that are in front of you. Um, so that the elevation profile kind of makes it look like a false course, but it's it's not as as downhill as it as it presents. Uh, you do you do actually have to work hard. So people kind of looked at at that time and were like, oh well, that's a downhill course. That's kind of a joke. Like whatever, you know, he's not really that fast. So then, what really put it on the map was New York. New York is what really got him there um, because now he's running alongside some of the best runners in the nation and and he's holding his own yeah and some of the best runners in the world right i mean you had guys yeah. finishing finishing 20th 25th who are household names in the running community yeah. and again maybe not everybody ran all out just like you had you and john had talked about yeah. he wasn't going to necessarily treat it as a time trial um like he had with mesa but it definitely i know you know that that was a huge was it his ninth 
overall in what? It was 62-51? He was eighth overall in 62-51. So okay. his time on that course, comparative to Mesa, is I, I recognize that New York is slower at time, but that effort, 100% without a doubt, is much faster. Much mm-hmm. faster. Absolutely. So what was that like then, going from the adrenaline rush and high of that race, beating some of the people he beat in just a super competitive field, and then having to then you know prepare for Boston and then dial it back you know, and, and just prepare as well as you possibly can coming off just the, the, the huge high of that race. Yeah. Well, it, it, what John's always level. Like he, he might not have been years ago, but whether it was the fall or, or running 63-49 or finishing 12th in Manchester or the 102-30 or even, even New York, yeah, he was excited because he just did something he, uh, he was very proud of, but it doesn't define him. At all, like that—that that is not how John is. That's not. It might have been years ago, but John's in a much different place now emotionally. Um, he's stable. Uh, he's got a stable environment with employment, with with his running. He feels good about himself. So it it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go conquer the world. It's, this is just one more step on the ladder to doing what I love to do. Uh, so. We got right back to work. We took appropriate downtime, but we got right back to work. And okay, now what do we need to do to get ready for Boston? And the workouts between New York and Boston were some of the best workouts at that time that he's ever done in his life, um, which is really cool. And I, I, you know, you look at a training. You always have as a coach, you always have a little bit of hindsight. Did I work him too hard? And I think there was one workout where I, I might have suggested he go a little bit too quick. And that might have been the the workout that that put him over the edge, unfortunately, um, because he just didn't have anything when he woke up for Boston. He had nothing, and by mile four or five, his legs were toast. And so it, let's it, let's let's talk about that workout and where it went and how far away it was from Boston. So it was two weeks out, maybe two and a half weeks out. Uh, we wanted to simulate as much of Boston as we could, uh, run very controlled for a, a portion of time, around an hour or so, and then turn around, have a little bit of easy running, and then run around three or four miles pretty much uphill, right? It wasn't so far over the top that it was like a brick wall mountain that you're trying to get over. Um, so John was running around five-minute miles for about 10 or 11 miles, controlled aggression, nothing over the top. He was and, able this to is at, and this is at altitude, right? This is at altitude, yeah. Yeah, we started around 8,000 feet and we got down to about 7,300. Uh, and it has a little bit of uphill inside of that, that 10 to 11 miles, but for the most part, it's all downhill, for the most part. Um, and then he turns around, he's feeling pretty good. He's, he's jogging his recovery of about a mile, mile and a half, around six minute pace. And then it's time to start the work again. And he's now running uphill. And I said, okay, don't, don't worry about the time. Just focus on the effort. And I want this to feel harder than what you were just running. Uh, I don't want you to dig like crazy, but I do want to, to, you to feel harder than what you were just running. And he, he does go like 517, 519, 542, 517. Uh, and that 542, that was a mile. That was like a 200-foot gain in a mile, maybe 250 feet in a single mile, uh, running up past 7,600 feet. 
So when you were doing that workout and just just taking stock now, looking back on it with hindsight, you know, 2020, what about that period of time, that week, week and a half leading into his taper, would you change uh, with, retro, you know, with, with hindsight? I don't know if I would change anything, uh, to be honest with you. Because I, I don't know if that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because he, he actually recovered off of that very, very well. It wasn't like he was de- destroyed, right? Uh, he still had more workouts to go and those workouts went fantastic. So he was fully recovered. The blood work we got done was great over that span of time. Uh, his energy levels were high. It was just that one workout where I, I, I questioned it a bit. I just don't know. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I think, um, we, we, we talk about it now and what we're doing different now than what we were doing for Boston. And like I said in the beginning, John used to run really, really hard. And up here and even in Connecticut or wherever he was, he used to run 110, 125 miles a week. And he was doing three or four workouts a week. And that's a lot of work. So my thought was, let's bring you down to 70 or 80. And let's just kind of hover there for a little while. Let's not do major long runs. Let's just focus on getting better and getting better and getting better. Um, and let's put that into a marathon training block, but we're not going to go from 80 to 110. You're just, you haven't done the work to get there yet. Just because you have a marathon doesn't mean you run 30 miles a week more, right? So I think what I would do differently is start introducing long runs a little earlier into his block, right? Uh, just to give him a little bit more time of, of, at exposure to longer work, but I think for the purpose of what what it is we were trying to accomplish with him as an athlete on the whole, it was the right overall idea and concept because look at what he was able to accomplish. And right, he's healthy. Right. He's, he's uninjured. Uh, he, we, we try to reduce that risk of injury as much as possible. Um, so now, now he is in a place where he can handle more volume and more mileage. So where he was peaking around 80, 85 miles a week or 90 miles a week, well, now he's already at 100, 105, and he feels wonderful. His body has been primed and prepared to handle the work. So let's talk about tapering with um, just your ideas and thoughts on tapering for a marathon uh, with your elite athletes. How do you like to approach it, and how much of it is you know, your, kind of your boilerplate, how you like to approach things with a taper, and how much did you alter things for John specifically? So... My idea for a runner who is handling 70 to 90 miles a week is you probably need to cut back a little bit. You know, an athlete that's running 40, 35, you, you really don't need to cut back that much at all. Because if you cut back anything, you're not running that the week of the marathon, right? Because there's 26 miles right there. So for a runner uh, who's running 70 to 90, uh, I, I like to cut back just a little bit. So what I try to do is take the runs themselves and just shrink them by 20%. I, I don't cut back mileage, just shrink the, the volume of the regular runs just a little bit. Um, take, the, take the idea of having a morning run and an afternoon run. We'll keep that because your body's used to that. You're, you're on a schedule. Just don't make them as long. Just, that's all. Just don't make them as long. If you're used to running 10 miles, run seven. If you're used to running eight, now you run six. Just keep keep the same pattern of movement in there. Um, I like to have a, a major workout uh, maybe 10 to 14 days before. Um, 
depending on how the training block goes, sometimes it requires a long run to be two weeks out and sometimes it needs to be three weeks out, but still having maybe a two-hour long run two weeks out. Um, it really depends on where you are and what it is you've done and, and what it is you've done prior to the four months leading into that marathon build. Um, but I think it's important to recognize what does what is the athlete feeling? Are they feeling energetic or are they feeling a little fatigued? And how do you battle what it is they're feeling? The same things that I did with John, I did something very similar with Kate Landau and Kate ended up finishing 13th. Yeah, she had a wonderful race and especially, um, is, Kate, is Kate 42? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, obviously she was, not only was it a great result, period, but a great result, especially for uh, someone in that age bracket, was, you know, it was really was miraculous and you've done great work with her and she's, she's a killer, that's for sure. Well, um, people forget, uh, or may, they might not know, that she ran a marathon like two and a half months before down in Miami. She ran a 237. But it, it was a very similar concept, you know. What does this person need? How do we try to respond, not just physically but emotionally? How are, how are things going? And you know, I'm not always there, right? You know, we work with athletes all over the country, uh, all over the world. But with John, he he was here, so I was spending a lot of time with him, and I could see his demeanor, and he he seemed like a very happy. That was a very happy time. Uh, so I wasn't worried about a thing. I actually went into Boston thinking. Uh, depending on the day, he had a really legitimate shot at finishing in the top 10. Uh, it just didn't pan out at all. <laughs> no, it, it, it did not. Unfortunately for John, you know, he, so he pulled, uh, around the 10 mile mark in the race. So let's talk about, you know, the, the month after that. So, yeah, so in terms, yeah. in terms of getting him back on his feet, just multi mentally, emotionally, and physically, he went from, you know, basically the best training of his life to exactly the opposite result of what he was expecting. So how do yeah. you, as a coach, approach that situation? Well, we, we had a few ideas. You know, number one, are you healthy? Uh, how are you feeling? What are you excited about? And what options do we have? So we had this option, and it's something that he was very excited about, um, to, to run Ottawa uh, at the end of May. And in Ottawa, um, we got him into the race and it was a top five gold label event. So if he finished in the top five at that time before this whole announcement just a few weeks ago, um, that would have been his Olympic A standard um, or the Olympic standard, I should say. Um, but training th those six weeks or so going into it, um, he just wasn't – he didn't look right, you know. He looked where – just a few weeks before, he looked like he was bouncing off the road. Now he looked like he was pulling himself with rope. Uh, it, and his technique didn't change. He didn't revert back or anything like that. He just didn't seem to have the pop he needed. So we got some blood work done and we saw that even though things weren't out of line, they just weren't great comparative to where he had been. Uh, but mostly, we relied on the doctors at Hypo2 to let us know that, you know, he, you're just overreaching and you need to take some downtime. So we did. We just pulled the plug. Um, the, 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 the three major long run workouts that, uh, that he had just did not go well at all. So there was just no point in, in giving it a shot. It didn't, it didn't make any sense. So when you say you, you pull the plug, what does that look like exactly from a training perspective? We, I gave him some time off. I gave him another seven to 10 days of just easy running and then... Um, 
But then sometime in June, we started running a little bit. Uh, we started working on some shorter stuff. But it wasn't long, maybe about three weeks before he actually felt like his, his old self. Okay. And then you just mentioned that he's a little over 100 miles a week now. What was now, that? Yeah. What, what, what was that build like from, you know, basically that, that month and a half um, or so from, from now until, until when he came back from that little break? Yeah. Well, we had some fun. Uh, he hopped into a mile race down in Tucson, followed by a 5K within an hour uh, in 96 degrees. So that was interesting. Um, and then he did the 4th of July downtown mile here. So it, right here in town at, at 7,000 feet. And he, he lost to Pat Casey, who was an amazing runner, just finished ninth at the USA cha uh, uh, Championship 1500 meter final. Um, and John lost to him within a half second. Um, which is pretty cool. So to see like a, a marathoner run really hard miles and run against some of the best in the country in short distances, that was kind of a lot of fun. Um, but we, we kept the mileage pretty tame around 60 or 70 miles a week for him. Uh, wasn't a lot. And then as he started coming back around, we started gradually increasing the longer run, um, not making it a workout, just, okay, now let's go for 13. Now let's go to 15. Now let's just kind of hover at 16 miles or so. And just kind of stay there. So it was it was a slow grab, and we, we then we got ready for the boilermaker. Um, and the mileage building into the boilermaker, I want to say it was around eighty to eighty five for about four weeks. Got it. And what was the expectation for you um, when he as you guys were going into the boilermaker? Uh, well, it was interesting. I, I kind of I had this idea uh, when we first started a year ago. He ran a mile within like three weeks and then he had the New Haven 20K not too long after that. So I said, okay, he just ran a mile and this is kind of like the New Haven 20K in terms of how it's going to feel on the body. So let's just hope that he runs faster pace per mile here in similar conditions than he did in the 20K a year ago. That was my only my only hope out of it um, that I, w I really expected to see. Uh, I wanted him to finish in the top 10. He just, he wasn't ready for it. Uh, he just didn't, he didn't have the wheels. He didn't have the sharpness in his legs just yet. Um, you know, if it had been three weeks later, yeah, absolutely. He would have been able to contend with some of the guys that, that, that beat him. Um, just because he's doing much better work now than he was four, four or five weeks ago. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted just him to go out there, feel good, compete really, really hard and see what happens. Um, we had, we had an idea that he would be able to run really fast and he did. It was just, it was a tough day. He just didn't have the legs, um, to go faster. Uh, you know, th those guys dropped a 417 mile or a 410 mile. He wasn't ready to do that. You know? Yeah. He talked about that, that he basically, you know, he was around the 430 mark and he was like, that's all I got. <laughs> See you yep. guys later. Um, yep. you know, and that was kind yeah, of all she wrote. So that's all he had going downhill. And, and then just this week, I gave him a workout. Uh, and inside the workout, he ran a 420 mile. Oof. That's, just, that's yeah, the that difference was, of four weeks, five weeks of training. Right there. Right. And, the, and you're right. That was, that was in the, the, the what? It was the, the final third of that track workout, right? Yeah. And we're at 7,000 feet. You know? It, uh, it, uh, you, you could say all this stuff about, oh, well, that's a race environment that's done downhill and this is, you got walk. Who cares? The time is the time. You know, he, just, he wasn't ready to do that four or five weeks ago. He's ready now. So we're really excited. He's got the Crim 10 miler coming up.
Yes. So let's talk about that because, and, and as well yeah. as the rest of his fall season. So I know you're happy with how John's progressing and you're really excited. That's going to be a good field. Actually, um, Parker Stinson, who's also part of the show is going to be running oh, in that. Yeah. I think Dathan Rissenheim is going to be there. It was definitely yeah. be a good group. What are kind of your thoughts for that race and how it's going to tie in to uh, the rest of his fall? Well, we, we, this is a key race for him. We want to take a stab at, uh, running the fastest 10 mile he could possibly run. So we're going to come off the, the gas a little bit off the mileage to allow him to receive that. Um, but uh, I, I expect that he's going to compete with Parker, uh, depending on what, where Parker is in his season. Um, you know, what, what, Parker is an amazing athlete. He, he's the, the 25K U.S. record holder. He's finally starting to see and realize the potential that everyone's been seeing in him for years. It's finally starting to come around, you know. Um, so if John can run shoulder to shoulder with him, that's, that's an honor. Uh, and, and, and if Dathan's there as well, like he's one of the, the finest American runners in, in history. Um, I think he ran 60 flat for the half, you know. So for John, what we're hoping for is, number one, a good weather day. So it presents the opportunity to have a fast time. Um, but uh, this, is, this is definitely going to be a, a key race where I would love to see him under 47 minutes. And I, I would like to really see how close to 46.30 we can get. Um, now, you need good weather for that to happen. It's not going to happen on a really hot, humid day. But if we have good weather, that's what we're going to strive for. And that's going to be the race plan going forward. So this is going to be much more about just run your all-out fastest as opposed to playing off the competition? Absolutely. 100%. This is about a time. This isn't about beating somebody. This is about running a time. Um, as so long as that presents itself, the day presents itself that way. You know, if, 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 if Parker beat John by, by 30 seconds... And John went 46, 45. We're not going to be upset. <laughs> you know, it's a great day. Um, he just, he wasn't going to run 46, 15. That's also going to be near the American record if Parker does that. Um, cause the American record is 46, 13. Um, so yeah, we're talking some serious times here. Uh, now if, if the weather turns out to be a really hot and humid day, we will change the idea of how we attack it. So, you talked earlier about how he approached New Haven 20K last year, thinking like going about 90, 95% as opposed to full 100%. And that by yeah. doing that, it allowed him to have the full fall that he was hoping for. So what about yes. going all out at Krim? How does that tie into the full tapestry of the fall regarding the other races that he'll be you know, planning for? Well, one, there's plenty of time between this race and his following race, which we, we will make an announcement at some point. Uh, there's, so there's plenty of time to recover, rebuild, and regather. Uh, after this race, we'll start his official marathon block. So this is going to be kind of the culmination of the work he's been doing for the summer. And then we can reset, rebuild, take a little bit of a down week, and then start the, the marathon specificity. He's already started building those long runs. He's already started adding the, the mileage. So he's got that. But we just haven't had the marathon specificity just yet because we haven't needed it just yet. And when you talk about marathon specificity, what exactly does that mean from a workout perspective? And how often do those kind of workouts play into his, 
his training. And I guess by that, I mean, you know, in regards, like just comparing it to his current training, like what, what are some of the, what would some of those workouts look like and how often would they be inserted into the schedule? So right now, and over the past eight to 12 weeks, we've been doing, uh, when I say quality work, I, I mean a speed session or a hard workout. We've been doing one earlier in the week. We've been doing one towards the end of the week, if you look at the calendar like that. And then we have a longer run that has been building in time. Um, sometimes that longer run is the day after a hard workout. Sometimes it's two days after a hard workout, right? So we don't really consider it uh, a very invasive run, even though he might be on his feet for an hour and 45 to two hours and 15 minutes. It's not that hard comparative to the mileage he's running. Um, but we are starting to practice nutrition intake just to get the idea of, okay, I got to take in two 300 calories an hour. I have to take this in. So that's one of the things that I, I want him uh, and that, that we've been working on. Um, you can get away with that and still run a quality marathon as a, a novice runner, you know, uh, because you've got speed, you've got power, you're building your long run. But if you're looking to perform in the marathon, I don't care if you're one of the best marathoners in the world or, uh, or the country or you're, you're a novice trying to run uh, and break four and a half hours, or you're trying to BQ your workouts in your marathon specific block of training that eight to 12 weeks better have some marathon intensity in there, marathon effort, marathon specific pacing, because that is your opportunity to practice taking in nutrition at effort. It's your opportunity to make sure you understand what it means to run a specific pace per mile and how to hold back and not run too fast. And it's also a very good recognition of current level of fitness, right? If you are five miles into a 10-mile marathon block, I'm sorry, you're not running marathon effort. I don't care what your goal is. It's not happening because that's not marathon pace. So for John, very specifically for an elite runner, what we try to do is base the training in reality, not what you want to run, but where are you right now? And what is your marathon pace going to be? And how do we just kind of stay there and hover? We might throw in a few surges here or there for a racing environment. But when it comes to marathon exposure, you want to sit there. And in a marathon cycle, it's traditional to build those marathon miles up as you go. You might not start right away in, your, in the first long run with 16 miles at marathon pace. That sounds like lunacy, right? But if you've been building for eight weeks or 12 weeks to get there, as a professional, it's not going to be as daunting of a task. Right. Because for a professional, you're really only talking about an hour and 20 to an hour and 30 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, you know, We're not talking about a four and a half hour marathon or running 16 miles of marathon base. That was a completely different conversation. One that I would argue is very inappropriate for that level of athlete to run. But for a professional, anywhere from 14 to 16 is generally what you see. You don't often see longer than that. You don't often see it. You can, but it's, it's not very common. Got it. James, thank you for all the information and diving so specifically into some of these training concepts. I really appreciate it. And I know that you're working hard. You got the Edmonton Marathon coming up for yourself. So good luck with that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that taper, I just started my little mini block, so I'm ready. 
I'm, I'm eating all the all the potatoes and all the rice. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right, I'll stay in touch. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, James, for coming on the show. So greatly appreciated. James just finished up the Edmonton Marathon this morning. You may have heard us talk about it briefly in this episode. He didn't have the race he was hoping for. He actually tweaked his hamstring earlier in the week. Um, I know, right? Tweet, tweaking your hamstring during your taper. What a nightmare. So we actually had to have three PT sessions this week, getting ready for the race. Uh, it was going well up until the 15K mark. Uh, he said he was holding basically 540 to 545 pace, talking comfortably with the other runners in, in his group. And then his hamstring just let him down and he fought the whole way. He, he said he wanted to make sure he finished the race. Uh, he did that. He battled. And we've, you know, if you've run through injury, you know, it's not only a physical stressor, it's a mental and emotional one as well. He battled his way, finished top 10 in Edmonton with a time of 241. Obviously, his second half was quite a bit slower than his first half, but just shows you how, how high quality his training was that he was able to run that time with, uh, you know, being hampered with a, with a bulky hamstring. So James, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It's so greatly appreciated. So have a wonderful day and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution. Crushing is deep.